Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking with information designer and professor Alberto Cairo, a name that has long been synonymous with data visualization. As author of numerous books in the field, his 25-year career has spanned from the newsroom to academia, taking him from Spain to Brazil and the United States. He talks to us about his most recent book, How Charts Lie, and explains why we're living in the second golden age of data visualization. He also shares with us his experience of working on Google News initiatives at the Epicenter Project, a powerful data visualization showing the devastating impact of the coronavirus in Brazil. Let's take a listen to our conversation with him now. Alberto Cairo, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so tell us a bit about yourself and your work in data visualization. Like, how did you get into the field in the first place? And, you know, was there a certain moment when you realized this was the field you wanted to work in? Or did it happen more organically? It, it, it happened organically. So I guess that I ended, I ended in this field by happenstance, like I guess most people who work in, in, with this stuff. So I am, I'm originally from Spain, as you know, and I studied journalism. Um, with the idea of eventually working in radio. I, 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 I really like radio, and I even had an internship in a radio station, in national public radio, essentially, in, in Spain, for a while where I read the news, and I always enjoyed the world of, the, the, the world of radio. But at the, in the last year of my journalism studies, one professor that I had knew that I can, I can sketch things out. So if you give me a pen or a pencil, piece of paper, I can sketch a person or an animal. So I know how to draw. I'm not a great artist, but I know how to sketch a little bit. And she recommended me to uh, for an internship in a, in a graphics department, in a graphics desk. And I knew nothing about information graphics or explanation graphics at the time. But I got into that internship when I was 22 or 23. So that was almost 25 years ago already. And I fell in love with the, with the field. I learned on the job. I had very good teachers in the newsroom. And I just stayed in the field ever since. At the time, I didn't do, uh, I barely did anything related to data. It was mostly explanation graphics. So using illustrations to, to, to tell stories, right? And, and 3D models and animation, etc. cetera. Um, I went through El Mundo, which is the second newspaper in terms of circulation in Spain. And I was the head of graphics there. And we also produce explanation graphics. And the, 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 the shift towards data visualization, I think that it happened around I guess 2009 or 2010, when I began reading and studying seriously um, cartography first. So I entered data journalism through cartography. So I started learning cartography seriously and systematically. And that led, obviously, cartography has a very high quantitative component. Right? So I, I, start, I started studying a little bit of statistics on my own, although I already started, I, I already studied statistics before college. It's uh, it's something that I I had forgotten by the by this time, and I sort of like recovered some statistical skills that I had acquired when I was younger, 
around 2009, 2010, I started, I started also learning a little bit about statistics. And that's how I got into, so, so cartography led to data visualization per se, although I had already done plenty of bar graphs, pie charts, and other types of data visualizations before 2009, 2008, 2009, I had never thought systematically about data visualization. And that's when I began working in these in this field. And then then I just just remain on it um, um, ever since. Let's talk a bit about your books. Um, I believe your paperback edition of How Charts Lie is released next month in October? Yeah, correct. Yes, it's coming out in, in October the 13th. And are there any new materials in there or is it is it just a paperback? It is all right. So yeah, there's some new material. There's a new um, a, a new post phase, a new epilogue about um, about COVID and what has happened with uh, COVID graphics. Uh, relatively short, like ten ten pages or something like that. And then um, the but that's the only that's the only edition. Then the rest of the book is identical to the to the uh, hardcover edition, with the exception that we are using a, a different color palette, more more based on oranges. So we uh, the the publisher decided to change the um, the cover, and now instead of being a blue cover, it's a yellow cover, which is uh, is very eye catching. I really like it. Um, it's much more it's much brighter for some reason, perhaps a little bit less serious. But, but I don't mind. The book itself is written sort of like in this sort of like cheeky tone. And so it makes sense that the, um, that the cover is a little bit, you know, a little bit more fun or something, a little bit less serious. And then the color palette inside, instead of being based on red, red and grays, is more orange and reds. And I really like it as well. So it's essentially the same book, but with that extension, with those extra 10 pages about, about COVID-19. And for those of us who aren't totally familiar with that book, who is that aimed at again? How Chats Lie is um, it's a book for the general public. Mm-hmm. It's a book for it's a book for anybody who wants to become a better reader of of charts, meaning statistical graphs and data maps and something like that. So it's the, the title of the book is a provocation. It's a provocative title intended to attract people to the uh, to the content of the book. But the book itself is not obviously it's not a book about how to lie with charts. Right? It's more a book about how to become a better reader of charts, and moreover. A better title of the book could have been, although it would be much longer and, and, and less catchy, how we lie to ourselves with charts. That's that's what it really is about. It's like how charts that are otherwise correctly designed, right, correctly made, may still mislead you if you don't pay attention to those charts, if you don't read them carefully. And, and this connects to, to the misconception that I mentioned before about you know, people thinking that visualizations are like illustrations, that you can just take, quick, take a quick look at it and move on, right? And the point that I make in the book is that we need to stop treating, treating ma- maps and graphs and charts as if they were drawings, right? We need to start treating them as if they were um, text, right? Text arguments that you need to read in order to decode them uh, correct, correctly. So, Again, it's a book for anybody who wants to get sort of like a, some elementary uh, chart reading skills. Right? What things you need to pay attention to when you read a when you read a chart. I hear you're working on a new book, The Art of Insight: How Great Data Visualization Designers Think. And I know you're partnering with uh, Lisa Fower from the Washington Post on that. And I just wondered, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about that and what we can expect from this upcoming publication. Um, so right now, 
The Art of Insight is, is not a book yet. What it is is, um, is a talk, right? It's a series of talks. Um, whenever, I'm, 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 whenever I think about writing a new book, uh, I, I did this with uh, The Truthful Art. I did it also with How Chats Lie, and I'm going to do it also for this next book, is that the book begins as a, as a talk, right? As a, as a lecture. And or, or as a series of lectures, right? Because what I do in lectures is to explore the ideas that I want to write about. Um, uh, I use the lecture also to sharpen those ideas, uh, to look for possible misunderstandings of those ideas. So I look for the response that the audience has to these ideas, and I try to incorporate that into the thinking. And then eventually, the the talk becomes uh, or solidifies. As a, as a book, right? That contains the, the ideas that I describe in the talk, or that, or and expand on those on those ideas. So I don't know yet when the when the book is going to be published. Probably, I mean, COVID has changed everybody's COVID nineteen has changed everybody's schedules. My original plan was to have it published by the end of two thousand and twenty one, but that will likely change. So I don't expect to have a new book until early two thousand and twenty two at the earliest. Uh, mainly because I still need to write it. <laughs> I'm still in the process of taking notes for it and organizing my ideas and coming up with sort of like the like the structure. And that is geared at data journalists, would you say, or designers? It, it's sort of like geared towards anybody who works with visualization, essentially. Not necessarily, although data journalists are usually sort of like my ideal audience. I write all my books like if they were going to be read by myself a decade ago, right? It's a, what things should I have known 10 or 15 years ago that I didn't know? And that's what I write about. It's like I, I could send it back in time, right? I could send a book back in time to myself, right? So my, my ideal audience is always data journalists. But ultimately, my books are, this is a funny thing. It's like it, it, it's happened, it happens with um, The Truthful Art, for example, right? My previous book, The Truthful Art. I wrote that book as an introduction to visualization in the news, right? How to use visualization to tell journalistic stories. But my main audience for that book, right? My main reader for that book is not, is not data journalists. All the data journalists read The Truthful Art and it's been used in journalism schools. My main audience ended up being data scientists. So it's a book that was it has been adopted in data science programs as a sort of like soft, not very mathematically rigorous introduction to data science. And the reason why they do that is that they say, well, you know, obviously you're not a mathematician. We can see that. But the concepts are explained so, so clearly that anybody can understand them. And that helps people lose the fear that we naturally have towards mathematics and statistics. And that's the best praise that I could get because that's exactly what I wrote the book. I wrote the book for an audience who is naturally fearful towards math. How many times have we heard in journalism? I ended up in journalism because I didn't like math, right? I just wanted to write, right? So I want people to overcome that fear. Math is not hard. I mean, math is hard, but it can be learned. And statistics is hard, but it can also be learned. Right? If I learn, you can learn. Therefore, I wrote the book, again, like if it was written for myself 15 years ago in order to overcome <laughs> that fear or that challenge. Yeah, That's brilliant. It's always good to know your audience. Um, yeah. Now, you aren't directed the, at the Epicenter Project for the Google News Initiative and 
it was a really powerful data viz showing the devastating impact of COVID-19 in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wondered, could you tell us a bit more about what's be, you know, the, behind the scenes of coming up with this compelling mm-hmm. simulation? Yeah, so at the epicenter is essentially a data visualization that asks the following question. What if all the people who died of coronavirus in Brazil, more than 100,000, were your neighbors? How many people around you would disappear? So what the, what the visualization does is it traces a circle around you and it shows you how wide, how big that circle would be around you if all of them were your neighbors. Um, I must clarify, by the way, that I did art direct this project. So I, I was the art director for the project, but I, I am not responsible for the idea. I cannot take credit for the idea. That the idea was the, 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 the creator's idea. So um, the, uh, we work with several designers from, from Brazil Vinicius Suero and uh, Rodrigo Menegat and, and others over there. And they they were the ones who came up with the concept and with the idea. I, I just happened to love the idea. And I helped, I guess, sharpen the idea a little bit more and the narrative a little bit more and the style a little bit more. But I cannot take credit for the idea. This is their project. It's not my project. So that's very important to me. And by the way, we are developing the American version of this project, which by the time that you publish this podcast, this podcast, it will be out already, probably, but I cannot disclose right now who is going to publish it. Um, in any way, in any case, so the project was published in Brazil weeks ago, and it went, um, so it became extremely, extremely popular. So um, it was uh, retweeted and shared in social media by thousands and thousands of people. Um, and the reaction from people sharing it in social media was invariably to say, wow wow, I never imagined that the problem was so big. And that is very revealing because it really shows that we human beings have a very hard time understanding numbers unless that those numbers are put at our own, our own scale, right? Unless that we are put at the center of the numbers, at the epicenter of the numbers, it is very hard for us to wrap our head around a number such as 100,000 in Brazil or 200,000 in the United States. That number is meaningless. But if we put that at our own scale, around you. So instead of imagining an abstract an abstract figure like 200,000, imagine that the person who's dying is your, your neighbor from across the street. At that point, the data becomes human and you see the face of the data, right? You cannot avoid seeing the face of the data. And that is what the project was uh, intended to do. And it succeeded at, uh, at that um, based on the reactions that, that we saw in social media. The project got picked up by the... Um, um, by the biggest weekly news program, TV news program in Brazil. Um, they, they devoted a special segment to it uh, on a weekend, uh, the, equivalent of, the equivalent of 60 minutes in, in, in Brazil called Fantastico. Uh, so they picked up the project and they showed it on, on TV and they navigated it. So it really, really got the attention of many people down there. Not surprisingly, I must say, just again, because I think that the concept behind the project is really powerful. Um, also because how how well designed it is. It's really well made. It's a project that is really, really well made, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 2019, you spoke about how we're living in the golden age of data visualization. Do you think that the pandemic has changed that? So, yeah, I, we live 
I think that we are living through a second age, a second golden age of data visualization. The first golden age of data visualization was the 19th century, right? And many of the ideas that we still use today in visualization were born in the in the 19th century, between the, the end of the 18th century and the middle of the 19th century, right? That was the time of people such as Florence Nightingale and John Snow and Charles Joseph Minard and many many of sort of like the um, landmarks in the history of data visualization. That was the first golden age. Right now, I think that the second golden age of data visualization began, I would say, the, 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 the seeds were planted in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, there was a resurgence of visualization through the work of several statisticians, such as uh, first uh, John Tukey and then um, William Cleveland, and then Edward Tufte and, and some others. And then later, there was sort of like the um, computer revolution, right? So we have uh, the appearance of, of, of digital computing, computers and then uh, digital data. And that facilitated the work of people who were in data visualization. So the, the golden age accelerated accelerated in the um, uh, at the end of the 1990s 2000s and and right now we are still living through a, a through that golden age right so more people are uh, incorporating visualization to their to their toolkit visualization is becoming widespread in many different fields not only um, data journalism but you know the sciences uh, business analytics um, I don't know, at the University of Miami, we have tons of departments. We have a great school of marine sciences, and they use visualization constantly and regularly for, for, their, for their work. But not only, I mean, business, physics, mathematics, statistics, they all visualize data just because visualization is useful, right? Visualization is very often the only way you will be able to detect patterns and trends in, in, in data or to detect possible problems and mistakes in your um, in your data, right? And, and, and the stories, the stories that hide behind the data, right? That's the idea that John Tukey, the statistician, uh, sort of like um, a, a put out um, the idea of exploratory data analysis, right? You use visualization not just a means to communicate um, ideas or stories, but as a means to discover potential stories in the data, right? You put the data in, you visualize it in different ways through scatter plots, through bar graphs, line charts, and so on and so forth. And through the visualizations that you create for yourself, you may be able to identify potential stories that you may want to pursue or to look into, right? So again, visualization is expanding. Visualization is becoming more popular as a means for communication, but more as a means for exploration and exploration and analysis. So that's, that's what I mean by a golden age. That is like, it's becoming widespread. It's a language that is becoming adopted widely and deeply by many different fields. And I think that it's a positive, it's a positive development because it, the visualization is also a, a tool for thinking and a tool for reasoning, right? Um, for many years, particularly journalists, we tended to believe that, you know, the only way to think or to communicate ideas was through writing or speaking through words. And we forgot that visual reasoning is also extremely important, right? We also can reason and we should reason also through graphics and through maps and through diagrams of different kinds. One thing I'd love to hear more about is your work at the University of Miami. What course are you teaching? What program are you teaching? What does that entail? 
I teach a course that is titled Introduction to Infographics and Data Visualization. So I introduce students to the world of, on one side, um, explanation graphics. So using simple illustrations to explain a process, a procedure, something that happened in the real world, right? Um, how a machine works, how an accident happened, and I teach them how to use simple line art illustrations to sort of like sequence a story and explain that story visually, right? So I teach that. But 70 or 80% of the course is focused mostly on data visualization. So I introduce students to the main ideas behind a, a data visualization. So um, the principle of encoding, right? What it means in, to encode data and how you choose um, an adequate type of graph or map to graph or map to represent your to represent your data. So I teach them different techniques um, uh, to do this, and I base my work upon you know the work of some of the people who I mentioned before, right? So uh, I, I obviously use my books as, as textbooks, but I I also recommend students other readings, mainly because my ideas are also based on the on the work of of, of earlier uh, pioneers. Again. You know, Tafty, William Cleveland, and Naomi Robbins, for example, who is the author of Creating More Effective Graphs. So uh, people like that has in, have informed my thinking for many, many years. So I try to incorporate all that into the, into the course. And I expose the students to these ideas. But at the same time, it's also an extremely practical course. So from the very beginning, I try to pair the knowledge or the learning of principles with the application of those principles. So I, I ask students to do a little exercise every single week. So by the middle of the semester, one or two months into the course, um, most of my students, if not all of them, are capable of producing professional-looking graphs and maps. Are these undergrad students or graduate students? Both. I have both. Okay. Mm-hmm. Both undergrads and grads. Okay. Brilliant. And not necessarily from journal from the journalism programs. That that's another. I, so I teach at the School of Communication, right? And I am tenured in the Department of Journalism. But most of my students, actually, just a tiny minority of my students are journalism majors. Um, most of them are. I have right now eight or nine data scientists in the course. I have marine scientists, uh, business analytics students, um, marketing students also, um, some communication students, and then designers, interactive designers. We have a very good interactive design program at school. And I also have students from that area. Just a tiny minority are journalism majors. Interesting. Um, Now, many people regard you as the guru of data viz and i'm just curious what does the guru read what resources do you turn to who do you recommend are there any podcasts you listen to or any other resources that you rely on i i am always wary about the the term guru um (laughs) i found it really funny um i'm just someone who is interested in all these issues and feels passionate about all these things and believes that everybody else should feel passionate about them as well. And that's the, that's the reason why I write the books anyway, or, or teach my classes. But yeah, there are many, many people out there whom I read and, and, and follow, not necessarily podcasts. Um, I tend to listen to podcasts that have nothing to do with visualization. So I listen to history podcasts, politics podcasts, because I, I think that the best inspiration usually comes from areas that apparently have nothing to do with what I do with visualization, but at the end, I'm able to connect them somehow. 
Um, so I tend to read, again, very widely, very broadly in, about different things and have some weird passions. So uh, I really like reading about the 7th and the 8th century in Europe. So I have all these weird interests. Now, in visualization itself, I, there are many people, fortunately, there are many people out there uh, who you can read, uh, who, you can, who you can follow, and who write very uh, interesting and meaningful ar- articles and books about, about visualization. Um, one book that I think that has been overlooked by the audience um, is uh, Isabel Meirelles' um, Design for Information. That's a fantastic book about visualization that unfortunately didn't become a bestseller and it deserves to be a bestseller because it's a great introduction to the world of visualization. So Isabel's book is really, really good and people should check it out. It's, it's a design book, but I think that journalists can greatly enjoy it. More, perhaps more rigorous, a little, a little bit more technical, a Tamara Munzner's book, Visualization Analysis and Design. So this is a book written by a computer scientist. So, but what it does, and it does it really, really well, is to condense and summarize decades of research on visualization, right? How people perceive visualization, how visualization is built. And what she does in the book is to condense all that research in 350 pages or something like that. So it's a very dense reading, but at the same time, it's dense in the sense of the amount of information that it provides, not in the sense of how hard it is to read. It is very easy to read. So that is another one. Um, R.J. Andrews um, has written um, extensively about visualization, particularly historical visualizations. Info We Trust is the title of, of his book. It's a highly philosophical book about how to think critically about visualization. I really, I really enjoyed it. And then lately, the Data Visualization Society um, has an online publication called Nightingale, after Florence Nightingale, and they publish regularly. They publish articles that I think that are worth that are worth reading. So I would really I strongly recommend to at least take a look at Nightingale. And finally, um, I mean, I follow, I try to follow everyone and anyone who does visualization, right? Um, but you know, I, I I tend to follow some people more than others, I guess, because I enjoy their their work a little bit more, perhaps. And besides the usual suspects, again. ProPublica, The New York Times, Washington Post, and so on and so forth. I really enjoy the work of the uh, the pudding. Um, oh, yeah, they're great. Yeah, they are fantastic. It's so much I really, fun. I, I, yeah, I am a little bit biased because I work with them in, in several projects on a regular basis. Um, but I really, really like what they're trying to do. It's like they are trying to show that the sky is the limit. When it comes to using data to do journalism, the sky is the limit. So even if data doesn't exist, you can collect that data. Even if you cannot access a certain data set, you can partner up with experts and statisticians who can help you with that. And, and sometimes the topics that they choose are highly unexpected. And I, I really enjoy that. So they show you not only how to do a visualization really well, but also how to come up with novel ideas for the stories that you can tell 
with data and, and visualization. So I find their, their work extremely inspiring. Oh, yeah. I love that one about, um, I think it's women's, this, the pocket size of women's That's jeans. That's a classic. That the was pocket sizes. just brilliant. How did they even, you know, it's just fascinating. But do you know do you know what they do? They, and I think that this is so, and it's one of the recommendations that I give to my students. It's like, this is one of the reasons you should read broadly and widely and not just about your own field. Because sometimes, the be- sometimes not quite often, the best ideas for stories will come by happenstance, by something that you read about and you didn't know about. and say, this is so interesting. Let me look into it, right? And sometimes the best stories come just out of a, comes out of a question that you ask yourself, right? So, oh, I am noticing that this book is really small, right? Is this true for every single gene, right? Is this for every single type of pants? So let's measure it. And they did measure it. They took a sample of, 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 of genes and they measured the pockets in men's genes and women's genes. And then obviously they discovered that women's genes have smaller pockets than men's genes, something that we already knew intuitively, right? But now they are demonstrating it through data, through that measuring. And the project is, is delightful. I mean, so it's so well designed. And I just wondered, um, thinking about, you know, the elections that are coming up in the United States and how the world is going to be reporting on this. Um, it's not just American journalists. Um, you know, what advice do you have for journalists and visual de- visual designers, you know, covering this? Uh, it's difficult to tell. I know it's difficult to give advice on things that you have not done systematically and seriously. I mean, I have never covered an American election myself. Um, I mean, I cover I covered it when I was in Spain, but not, not internally, not from the country itself. Now, when it comes to visualization, though, I would say, you know, try to, try to de-emphasize horse race narratives. We journalists like to sort of like, um, we see a new poll and we saw that the new poll is a swing in comparison to the previous poll. And we tend to overemphasize the latest poll. Oh, Trump is losing so many points in comparison to the previous poll or Biden is gaining so many um, points over the previous poll. Always forgetting that any single poll is noise, right? Any single poll is always noise. What really matters is sort of like the weighted average of all those polls, right? So if you see in a period of time, five, 10 polls all pointing in the same direction, that might be a pattern. But a single poll itself means nothing. So all these horse race covers, oh, the new poll shows that, you know, Biden is gaining four points or Trump is gaining four points. That's meaningless. It's completely meaningless because that may be just noise, right? It may be just a product of polling error. We don't know. So I wish that journalists would become a little bit more cognizant on, on, on how to think probabilistically. That will be another thing. Learn a little bit about probability, which, by the way, it's another idea for a book that I have an introduction to probability for journalists. So how to think about a confidence, uncertainty, and probability. So again, another popular book in which I will translate concepts from books written by people who know much more than I do about all these issues, but written in a language that a normal person like myself can understand. But I wish that journalists would become a little bit more probabilistic in that sense. That would be one thing. And then trying to convey to readers how uncertain all these things are. So all these polling, all these forecasting, all these things, they are interesting to read. I think that I'm not against publishing numbers, obviously, uh, but I wish that we would emphasize even more than we do right now, 
the level of uncertainty around those estimates that we're making, right? The error, the margins of error, and, and, and the error of all the forecasts. And error, by the way, it's a technical word in statistics. Error doesn't make make doesn't mean a mistake, right? An error is simply the level of uncertainty that your estimate or your your point estimate has. And so we need to explain all these concepts to readers. Fortunately, we are doing it more and more, right? Like places like ProPublica or 538, whenever they or even the New York Times sometimes, when they publish data and 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 the data. Understanding the data involves certain understanding of the uncertainty around those data. They sometimes explain these statistical concepts within the stories themselves. I think that that's progress. That's great progress. Right. And finally, I'm just curious, what's next for you? Are there any other upcoming projects besides the book you mentioned or any other courses or things we can look forward to? Yeah, I'm not planning any new online course at the moment. Um, so, But I'm doing the, 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 the series of lectures, which, by the way, I mean, if you're, this is for your audience, if, if you teach in a journalism department or um, you're planning to organize a conference or whatever, you can always invite me. I mean, I just send me an email. It's very easy to find my contact information online. And I will be happy to deliver the lecture or at least the latest version of the current lecture that I have. I'm changing it all the time and updating it with new examples. The lecture about how to think about visualization, how to reason about visualizations, right? Um, so I will be happy to do that. So that's what is keep, keeping me occupied at the moment. I'm pretty busy with that. Then classes and that's that's essentially it. I don't have any online course. And I just wonder, is there anything else I missed that you wanted to talk about? I guess that the only thing that I would like to say at the very end is um, something that I say at the beginning of my courses, that sometimes the students who get to my courses are a little bit fearful, a little bit wary about the class, you know, saying, oh, am I going to succeed in this class, right? It's like, this looks so complicated, right? I see all these graphics in the New York Times and the Washington Post. How am I going to be able to produce something like this? And I say, don't worry. Let's talk a couple of months from now, and then we can have the discussion again. Because if you really put the time and you really put the effort and you follow my guidance and you do the tutorials and the exercises and you take my feedback seriously, the feedback that I give you about your exercises, I can guarantee to you that two months from now, you will be able to produce professional-looking graphs and maps, regardless of your background, regardless of whether you have or not any sort of background in design or anything. I will teach you all the tricks. Again, I will try to condense 10 years of experience in just a few months, and I guarantee that you will be a professional visualization designer. So I think that this is something that anyone can do. Visualization is not magic. Right, visualization is like written language. The same way that we learn how to write, read or write, right? We can also learn how to visualize. And again, it's an extraordinarily powerful tool for exploration, for reasoning, for thinking, and also for communication. So I would encourage everyone in the audience to give visualization a try at some point. Fortunately, these days there are plenty of free resources online that you can use to first learn some principles of visualization and then learn how to use a couple of tools. You don't need to go directly to coding. There are tons of free tools out there that will help you take the first steps in learning visualization. So so go do it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Alberto Cairo, for joining us today on Conversations with Data. This was absolutely fascinating listening to your insight and your advice and perspective about data viz in general. Thank you for having me again. 
A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this, you could subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.